Sports World in Sports. Let's be great. Let's be great. An entertaining and provocative look into the world of sports and beyond. Play our game. All right? Play hard, but stay poised. Please feel free to go over to Apple iTunes and rate and review. Your feedback is welcome. Go rock this thing, huh? Love you, man. Go get it. And now, the host of the program from the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, Wendell Wallace. Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to get down on and discuss today in the world of sports. My goodness gracious, Lord have mercy. Wendell's world of sports is going to be taking a look at what's going on in the NBA playoffs. Wendell's world of sports is your host, Wendell Wallace, me truly, is going to be speaking about what's happening in the world of sports. You good, you fine, you fantastic, you're doing what you need to do to make this world a better place, to make your block a better place, to make your community a better place to be in, living, loving, learning, listening, educating yourself. Bonjour, bonsoir, monsieur, mademoiselle, je m'appelle Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World of Sports. Que pasa, mi amigos? Me amo Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World of Sports. Namaste, shalom, wassalamu alaikum, konnichiwa, Wendell's World of Sports. Your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. I'm amped, I'm pumped, I'm excited, I'm rip-roaring, ready to go. You just heard, thank you very much, Marv Albert. Thank you very much, TNT. You just heard the highlights. An epic, unbelievable, magnificent, almost historical performance by Kevin Durant Tuesday night, game five against the Milwaukee Bucks. Durant, 49 points, 17 rebounds, 10 assists, leading the Brooklyn Nets back into the lead into the Eastern Conference semifinals with a 114-108 come-from-behind victory over the Milwaukee Bucks, game five, one of the best game fives played, maybe since Reggie Miller and Spike Lee got into it way back in the 90s with Patrick Ewing and all those guys in that Eastern Conference semifinals, the one that ESPN did a 30 for 34, the game five performance in the NBA Finals against the New York Knicks and the Los Angeles Lakers back in 1970 when Willis Reed got injured and then the Knicks fall behind and then all of a sudden when Willis Reed is out, they staged that unbelievable comeback to win game five. It was right up there in terms of excitement. It was right up there in terms of importance. It was right up there in terms of what the Brooklyn Nets were doing 
as far as a team, a professional basketball team in basketball, the electricity, the excitement that that basketball team brought to New York City, the feel of still getting people, still getting fans back into the arena, everything just came into play, and it was off the chain, it was off the hook, and we have Kevin Durant to thank for it, along with Jeff Green, similarly with Blake Griffin, but the main star of the show, Kevin Durant, played all 48 minutes, shot 16 of 23 from the field, 4 of 7 from the three-point line, and 48 minutes, 48 minutes, 48 minutes. KD had 20 points in the fourth quarter, made a ridiculous shot clock, winding down, better than LeBron, similar shot against the Golden State Warriors in the play-in game, three-pointer with 50 seconds left. And the Nets protecting a one-point lead, shot clock running down. James Harden wasting the possession, gave the ball to KD, launch, fade, launch a uh, long three-pointer, top of the key, extended, bingo! Awesome. And the crowd went crazy. The crowd went nuts. Durant became the first player to have at least 45 points, 15 rebounds, and 10 assists in a playoff game. Did I mention before that this guy missed the entire season the year before because of an Achilles tear. Did I mentioned that Kevin Durant only played, what, 32, 35 games, less than half of the regular season games this season because of a myriad of injuries and maintenance uh, issues. Did I, did, I, did I mention that? Did I talk about that? Did I even, did we even, did the world even, did you even, did basketball fans even, did sports fans even mention Kevin Durant before this game when we were speaking about as of right now, 2021, the year 2021, who is the best player in the NBA? We speak about, I speak about, you speak about, anybody who knows basketball speaks about the wave of really young, talented basketball players that we have coming into the league that right now is establishing themselves. We talk about the foreign imports that are coming over and putting their stamp, making their impact on the game. We talk about the next generation of stars. We talk about Giannis. We talk about Zion. We talk about Luka. We talk about Trey. We talk about Donovan. We talk about Devin Booker. We talk about all those guys. And then, after this season, the magnificence of a Steph Curry, the still brilliance of a LeBron James. We still talk about those guys. When the first and second and third team all-league team comes out, we speak about the Kawhis, we speak about the Dame Lillards, we speak about the Kyrie Irvings, we speak about all these guys. But Game 5 in New York, Tuesday night, the Brooklyn Nets without Kyrie, James Harden being basically playing one-legged and being less than less than less efficient than what he usually is. With everything that's riding on that game, Kevin Durant had to let everybody know, before you start crowning Luka, before you start still bowing down to LeBron, before you start speaking of historical purposes with Steph, when you start speaking about the claw with Kyrie, and when you start speaking about the Young Bucks, and when you start speaking about Joel Embiid, and you start speaking about the MVP and Nikola Jokic, when, when it, before you start, start crowning their asses, in terms of giving them historically great titles and great players, and they've arrived, and the new wave of players and all this nonsense, before you got me, Wendell Wallace included, before you start going that route, please remember, who's all y'all motherfuckers' daddies? It's Kevin Durant, biatch. Kevin Durant, what a game, man. What a game. 10 to 13, and as far from the field is concerned, 10 to 13 in the second half. Scored 31 points in the second half. 20 points in the fourth quarter, shot after shot after shot after shot. 
and Milwaukee couldn't stop him. I'll get to Milwaukee in just a second. Milwaukee couldn't stop him. And it was something that really we weren't anticipating. We weren't thinking about. You got to remember, man, Durant was shooting only 20 or 53 combined in game three and four in the uh, losses on the road, road the previous two games. And people were talking about P.J. Tucker and being physical and getting into his grill and throwing him off and annoying him and doing all these type of things. Well, KD said, yeah, okay, hold on for a second. Hold on for a second. Let me once again show you again who's P.J. Tucker's daddy. Who's P.J. Tucker's pimp? Who's P.J. Tucker's, you know, he's my bitch, biatch. And uh, took him to school, man, at least on the basketball court. Took him to school and on the basketball court, virtually you witness a a a a assault that shouldn't be suitable for children under the age of 18 as far as basketball playing is concerned you, you might have two thoughts when watching Kevin Durant if you're a youngster playing basketball if you really want to get into this if you're really your dreams and your goals is to make the NBA if you just love playing basketball you watch Kevin Durant I don't care if you're watching it from Elkhorn Indiana I don't care if you're watching it from Seattle Washington I don't care if you're watching it from Liberty City Miami I don't care if you're watching it from Plano Texas I don't care if you're watching it from North Las Vegas Nevada I don't care if you're watching it from Brooklyn Massachusetts you want it Brooklyn Massachusetts well wow. Brooklyn Minnesota how about that you want to get a basketball in your hands if you love the game if you're inspired by the game if you got some love for the game after the performance of Kevin Durant what he put on game five you want to grab that basketball you don't care if it's two o'clock in the morning you don't care if it's midnight you don't care if it's 10 o'clock no matter where you're at no matter where you're living in this time zone we're all, all over the world after watching that performance that makes you want to get grab a basketball and start, and start doing some things let the imagination run wild let the dreams let the dreams emerge. Let's go out there and do what you need to do. Get on that basketball court and say, for tonight, I'm going to be Kevin Durant. And I'm going to shoot and I'm going to score. I'm going to be brilliant. I'm going to be fantastic. That is the motivation. That is the impact. That's the brilliance that Kevin Durant gave you on Tuesday night. That's one side of the ledger. After watching Kevin Durant did what he do. Do he did. Did he do? Do he did. On Tuesday night, game five, Eastern Conference semifinals against the Milwaukee Bucks. The other side of the ledger is, if you like the game of basketball just a little bit, maybe it's something that you like to do instead of wrestling for your high school team during the uh, fall season. You know, after football might be your game, baseball might be your game, and you might take basketball as something just to do, just to kind of keep in shape, just to hang out with the boys, just to kind of keep busy, just to kind of stay out of trouble. You can identify more with someone like a P.J. Tucker, more than you can like a Kevin Durant. And you saw the beatdown, you saw the ass whooping, you saw the basketball assault, the basketball beatdown, the basketball destruction, the basketball murder that Kevin Durant did to P.J. Tucker. You might say to yourself, I never wanted to, uh, I'm, I'm, I might want to go ahead and focus my dreams and focus my goals on something else. Because uh, if that's what it's going to be to be guarding someone that good, I'm going to try to do something else. I mean, could you imagine yourself in high school, 16, 17 years old, prom is coming up, the cheerleaders are out there cheering, you got all these beautiful girls sitting in the stands, you come out there to play basketball, fight, fight, fight for frostbite high, cheer and cheer and cheer again, and then you line up with someone with the skill, you have someone with the potential, you have someone with like the dominance of someone like Kevin Durant, and you're a P.J. Tucker, 
And you're going to be coming out there in front of families and friends and a couple of girls that you want to sleep with and a couple of cheerleaders you want to impress and you put a beat down, you get beat down like that? You're saying, nah, coach, here's my uniform. Nah, coach, here's my sneakers. Nah, well, I'll keep the sneakers because I need them. Nah, coach, here's my job. Well, I need the job too, depending on, you know, what grade I'm in. Nah, coach, but here's my uniform. I'm done. I'm going to go ahead and play something else. I'm going to go ahead and do something else. That's the kind of nonsense that P.J. Tucker must have been going through. That's the kind of stuff that Chris Middleton must have been thinking about as Kevin Durant was lighting up the, their asses on Tuesday night. Like that youngster playing high school basketball playing against a five-star recruit, and he's only out there just to uh, just to play with the boys, just to hang out, just to have some high school memories and get himself ready for his spring sport or for his winter sport or his fall sport, whatever, whatever that is. Basketball's winter, fall is football. Okay, so there you go. That's what it must have felt like for P.J. Tucker and Chris Middleton on Tuesday night, game five, in the game that they had to have. And it wasn't that way at the beginning when... Milwaukee jumped out to that big lead. Hey, man, they were moving on up to the east side. And Brooklyn looked done. Brooklyn looked finished. But then KD said, no, man, fuck this. And let's kind of give the co-MVP of this game, the Holly Forrest player of the game, co-MVP, Kevin Durant, star, take a bow. The spotlight shines on him brightly. But let's not forget the co-MVP of this game was Jeff Green. Let's not forget that a fantastic movie, all the great movies, all the historic movies can't be done by just one actor and one actor alone. As great as Tom Hanks is, as great as Sidney Poitier is, as great as Denzel Washington is, as great as uh, Morgan Freeman is, as great as Michael Douglas is, yeah, they can have the greatest movie in the world. But if they don't have that strong co-host, if they don't have that strong supporting cast to uh, help them shine, it ain't going to be happening, no matter how great it is. Denzel and Malcolm X wasn't as great if he didn't have uh, my man playing um, uh, um, uh, Elijah Poole, the non-honorable Elijah Muhammad, and everyone else around him. You know what I'm saying? It couldn't have been happening. So for the co-stars of the game, for the players who gave Kevin Durant the opportunity to put on a performance of a lifetime, let's give it up for Jeff Green. Did I mention Jeff Green from Georgetown University? And I mentioned all those recruits that Jeff Green learned the game, not just from Prince George's County streets to Prince George's County play courts, uh, basketball courts in Prince George's County, Maryland, but the, cl the clutch, the guile, the determination, the skill, the will. Where did he learn all those things? Right there on the courts of Georgetown University. When Brooklyn was at their lowest, his shooting kept Brooklyn within sight for Kevin Durant to go off like that. There were plenty of times that Brooklyn as a team was ready to let go of the rope in terms of not just the first half, but early on in that third quarter. It was a situation where that lead was 17, that lead was 20, that lead was sometimes 22, 23 points, and it looked like, you know what, it was just one more play, and the Brooklyn Nets were going to wave the white flag. But Jeff Green, from where did, he, where did he go to school? Where did he learn his skill? Where did he learn his shooting skills? Where did he learn the ability to become a top five lottery pick? Where did he learn to save the day and give Kevin Durant the avenue, the opportunity to put on the performance that he did? What school did he go to? Georgetown University. 27 points for Green. 8 of 11 from the floor. 7 of 8 from the three-point line. 
Oh, did I mention before that this was his first game back? I believe one of his first game backs because of injury took him out of uh, multiple games, but then came back and put on performance like this and basically helped save the game, save the season for the Brooklyn Nets. Where's he from again, George? uh, Jeff Green, Georgetown University. He was also, not just on offense, speaking about Green, he was also very effective and efficient on defense guarding uh, 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 Giannis. Being physical, bother, annoying him. He was basically doing what P.J. Tucker was doing with Kevin Durant in games three and four. Had a, you know, uh, baited Giannis Adinokupo into an offensive foul. I just had this, I hadn't said Adinokupo in a while, so I just want to make sure I can still pronounce it. But, um, you know, force Giannis into an offensive foul. It's easier to guard Giannis than it is KD on the offensive side because KD is so versatile and as far as, you know, offensive skill-wise is, is concerned, we might be, you might be, we might be looking at the greatest offensive small forward who's ever played the basketball game. I'm not talking about all around. So for all you Larry Bird lovers and going back even before that, Rick Barry, Elgin Baylor, and everybody else who wants to sit there and go, what? I'm talking about as far as the ability to put the ball inside the hoop, the, the ability to score and to shoot. The levels of shooting, the skill of shooting, the degree of difficulty of shooting. I'm sorry, LB. I'm sorry, Larry Legend. I'm sorry, Mr. Slick Rick Barry. I'm sorry, Mr. Innovator, the godfather of modern NBA basketball, Elgin Baylor. I'm sorry, Dr. J. Julia Serving. I'm sorry. The greatest scoring small forward of all time, arguably Kevin Durant, went crazy, went nuts. And we have to thank Jeff Green among others, who kept Brooklyn in a position for Kevin Durant to go insane and for the Brooklyn and for the uh, Milwaukee Bucks to uh, to choke and gag like uh, like I haven't seen since the Portland Trailblazers lost that 15-point lead to the Los Angeles Lakers back in 2001. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. James Harden, whoever would have thought any time in James Harden when you're speaking about his play, play, uh, playoff career and you're speaking about him coming up small in big games, if I would have told you that in a game in which the Brooklyn Nets needed to win, most imperative, and James Harden in 46 minutes would go one of 10 from the field. What would be your initial reaction? Yep, yes, James Harden, fuck it, yeah, uh-huh, yeah. Doesn't, doesn't surprise me at all, James Harden coming up small again, yep. Yeah, no, 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 uh James Harden played 46 minutes on one leg. James Harden showed you that he's a basketball savant, that he's a basketball genius. Maybe he exposed Mike Bootenholder as a guy who, I don't know, Forget not even coaching in the NBA. How about coaching a girls? How about, how about, doesn't even have the ability to coach a girls basketball team in high school, at the high school level in San Diego, California? To go out there and play 46 minutes, go one of 10 from the field, and yet, because of his performance, cannot be met with scoring or criticism? Definitely wasn't the James Harden that we needed him to be, the James Harden that you would thought you were getting when he was traded from the Houston Rockets to the Brooklyn Nets. And you take a look at that stat line, one of 10, 46 minutes. And you look and you might say, this is, come on, man, give me a fucking break. You're going to tell, tell me this was brilliant, this was great, this was showing, this was showing off James Harden's basketball brilliance and genius, one of 10? 
the fact that he was out there for 46 minutes on one leg and was and played a role, played a decent role, not as much as as Jeff, uh, not as much as Jeff Green, not as much as Blake Griffin, but he kept everybody in their lanes. He kept everybody, he kept everybody in the position to do their thing as far as their responsibilities is concerned. Now, all of a sudden, you take a look at the Utah series. And you see this Utah series right now with the Los Angeles Clippers. And we see Donovan Mitchell trying to play the point guard position because Mike Connolly is out. I'll get into that situation a little bit later. But we see how off the Utah Jazz Jazz offensively and defensively are because, well, you have guys playing out of position. James Harden, as limited as he was during this game, still allowed Joe Harris to have the same responsibilities, still relied Still had Blake Griffin to do his same responsibilities and allow Kevin Durant to go absolutely flipping nuts. So James Harden was absolutely brilliant. How in the world if you're James Harden? How in the world if you're the Brooklyn Nets? How in the world if you're that Mike Bootenholder, or Giannis Adenokupo, Chris Middleton, Drew Holiday, and the Milwaukee Bucks? How does a one-legged basketball player play more minutes in the game where he clearly shouldn't have been out there playing? How does he play more minutes than you guys? Now, I know Giannis played 42, and I know that he was in foul trouble, but if I'm Chris Middleton and I'm Jeru Holiday, how in the world is James Harden out here for 46 minutes? He's got to guard somebody. If he's guarding Drew Holiday, somebody on that team he's got to guard. How are you not exposing this guy? Get to that in my next segment. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you can be with us speaking about NBA playoffs, speaking about the Eastern Conference semifinals, speaking about the historical, magnificent, majestical performance by Kevin Durant. Makes Game 6 a little tasty. Makes Game 6 a little fry. I'm recording this. I wanted to record this last night, but I got a call from a school and saying, hey man, can you do kindergarten? I was like, uh... Well, uh, and then I remember my financial situation. I was like, yeah, I guess so. Because of that, I'm recording this a little bit later on than I wanted to. But in in a couple of hours, we're going to get to see the Game 6 matchup between the Milwaukee Bucks and the Brooklyn Nets. But moving on to Game 6 for the Brooklyn Nets, i got to ask you a question. I want to give you my answer on this. What do you think should be the strategy as far as time management in terms of game preparation in terms of where we want to go with the Brooklyn Nets after that epic game five did Kevin Durant and James Harden and even Jeff Green basically empty the chamber of historical excellence domination guts guile in game five and I'm talking about historical excellence I'm 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 giving that just to Kevin Durant but as far as James Harden is concerned, the guts, the guile for what he did to play 46 minutes, you, you really can't expect them 48, 48 hours to turn around and do that again on the road against what should be an embarrassed and determined Milwaukee Bucks team who showed up and played and showed their mettle and showed their character and showed their heart and showed their moxie and showed their experience in games four and five or games three and four after getting embarrassed to the hilt in game two. I'm quite sure, not going to go on the assumption trail because you know what happens when you do the assuming, you make an ass out of you, me, and I ain't making an ass out of anybody. So my 
thing is going to be that I'm going to guess, guesstimation, based on the evidence that I've seen that Milwaukee's going to come out and they're going to play pissed. Milwaukee's going to come out and try to basically end this game five minutes into the first quarter. Basically, they're just going to try to come out first round and just go Marvin Hagler, Tommy Hearns on each other on, on the uh, Brooklyn Nets. They're going to take Tommy Hearns. They're going to take Marvin Hagler the night that they fought in the three-round fight, and they're going to just encapsulate both of those guys and come out and face the Brooklyn Nets and basically try to uh, destroy them, basically try to annihilate them for what they did to them in Game 5, basically, especially with Kevin Durant. With Brooklyn, where do you go with that? So, for instance, if Milwaukee comes out and just goes hog-flipping wild, the ball's moving, the ball's popping, three-pointers are shooting and making them, Giannis is being a beast inside, uh, Lopez from the outside shooting threes, Middleton's mid-range game is good, Giroux not only scoring but setting up, setting up others, and then at the end, or midway through the second quarter, we're looking at a 18, 20, 22-point lead. If you're Steve Nash, do you continue to play Kevin Durant? Well, you continue to play him because it's only the second quarter, but when do you start thinking about, all right, let me start going ahead and game-managing his minutes because there's no use of me trying to keep James Harden, who's far from 100%. There's no use in trying to keep Kevin Durant out here if midway through the second quarter, we're down by 18, 19 points. If I play him and we lose and he plays 42, 38, 39 minutes, both those guys, then less than 48 hours, we have to go back to game seven in Brooklyn and play. Where do I start thinking, you know what, man? This game is over. We're going to put this away. Milwaukee did what they need to do, winning on their home floor. We're down to one game. I need the best. I need the most energetic. I need the healthiest Kevin Durant and James Harden that I can get for game seven. So, no. If this game gets out of hand quickly, unlike game five, where Nash was almost like, I don't have any other choice. And we're down in the third quarter by 20-something points, by 17 points. I have no shot. I had no opportunity to, say, throw the white flag and let's rest these guys. He did that in Game 4. Remember in Game 4 where the Nets started to make a little bit of a comeback in the fourth quarter and Nash was ready to substitute uh, the starters out of the game and then Brooklyn made a little bit of a late little run and then Jock Vaughn and a couple of, couple of other people came to Steve Nash and was like, hey, man, I know you've got those guys over there on the score table ready to check in for the starters, but... uh." We've got Kevin Durant. He's starting to get hot. We're starting to get on a roll. Let's play a few more minutes with these guys, and let's see what happens. And Steve Nash was like, I'll give it 30 seconds. I'll give it a couple of possessions. And then there, very quickly afterwards, took the starters out because he was sitting there talking about, this. okay. Yeah, I'm going to wave the white flag. I don't need to go ahead and go to desperation mode for this time period, for this point in the game, because... The very least, we're going to go back to Brooklyn 2-2, two to two, and we're good. And I need Kevin Durant to beat Kevin Durant, and I need something from the rest of these guys. He could have done that in Game 4. He did that in Game 4, Steve Nash. Couldn't do it in Game 5. So if the situation is the same, second quarter, third quarter, 17, 18 points, Milwaukee's doing their thing. Steve Nash, is he like, you know what, pull him out. Let's get him ready for... Uh, Let's get him ready for same game seven. It was announced that Harden's going to play in game six against the Bucks. 
in a couple of hours. Again, he played, Harden played 46 minutes in his first game in 10 days. There's got to be some residual effects. I know that he's a elite athlete, and I know he's got the best training in the world to get him ready to go, but on one leg, even if it's a little bit improved, I don't know how it's going to be a little bit improved after the guy played 46 minutes, but he, he can't do that again, can he? I mean, you can't expect James Harden to improve on what he did on Tuesday in Game 5, can you? No, no. So where does the maintenance level lie with Steve Nash in terms of how he's going to prepare for Game 6 with James Harden? It'll be interesting. Kyrie Irving, Game 4 or Game 3, Game 4, I forgot, whenever he sprained his ankle, he's not ready to play. He still remains sidelined with a right ankle sprain. He didn't even travel to Milwaukee with the team. Uh, this is what Nash said on Wednesday, the fact that he's you know not yet advanced to do any type of on-court work, and he's going to stay in Brooklyn to uh, receive treatment and hang out with his newborn. So, you know, if, if, it, if that's the situation, again, how much am I looking if I'm the Brooklyn Nets at winning game six? You can't win game six at all costs. That's game seven right there. You can't do that. It would be like in a seven-game series for the World Series. It would almost be like if a team is playing for the um, – for the championship in baseball. You know, you, you don't go ahead and you start emptying your bullpen and start using starters for two or three innings in game six if you're leading three to two. No, that's you save that nonsense for game seven. So if you need to take your beat down, if you need to take your licks, you go ahead and you do that. And you get everybody hands-on board for game seven. It's the same thing with the, um, with the NBA in terms of these playoffs, in terms of, I think, what should happen with the Brooklyn Nets? We're going to go out here. We're going to try to win game six. Absolutely, we are. But I've got a hobbled um, James Harden who just came off a game where he played 46 minutes less than 48 hours ago. i got a guy in Kevin Durant who put up an epic performance and is going to have to shoulder the lion's share of the responsibility, not just offensively, but also defensively moving forward. I need to think a little bit longer down the road because for us, this is not an elimination game. We're ahead 3-2, to two, not behind 3-2. to two. So not breaking glass in case of emergency in this game. Game gets out of hand early. Milwaukee comes out and starts whooping our ass and doing what they need to do, firing and desire without Rick James or Tina Marie. Then I'm going to just go ahead, pull back the starters, getting them a little bit rested because then in less than 48 hours, we got to turn around in the boogie down and do it one more time. But just an awesome, fantastic, fabulous, historical game by the guy who, yeah, right now, the best player in the world, the best player, basketball player walking this planet from Suitland, Maryland, PG County. He stands six foot nine, and his name is Kevin Durant. Don't you forget about it, Biatch. And I am MC Smooth B. Together we are nice and smooth with pure and harmony. And just in case you wonder what we're wrong, we'll say that we're sorry for keeping you waiting so long.
Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to get down on and discuss today in the NBA, in the NBA playoffs, what's happening in the Eastern Conference. I'm going to very quickly hit on the Philadelphia 76ers and the Atlanta Hawks a little bit later on after I speak about the complete and epic collapse of the Milwaukee Bucks. Speaking of complete and epic collapses, I'll get to the Philadelphia 76ers in Game 5 in just a moment, but... The Milwaukee Bucks, man. What are you going to do here? What are we going to be talking about here? What's going to be the emotion here? What are you thinking? What's your thoughts? What's your feelings about this team, man? They lose the series. Speaking of you, Milwaukee Buck fan. They lose the series. Game five is going to go down as one of the worst losses in franchise history. I don't know any others. I don't know any of the Lou Alcindor, Oscar Robertson, Bobby Dandridge type losses that might sting. Losing the NBA Finals in 74 might sting. And the, the rivalry game they had with the Willis Reed, Earl the Pearl Monroe, Walt Frazier, Dave the Busher type series might sting. Their battles with the Washington or Baltimore Bullets might sting. I don't know. Going into the 80s with Marcus and Bob Lanier and Sidney Moncrief and Brian Winters and um, Jack Sigma and the Don Nelson coach teams maybe losing a series to the Philadelphia 76ers and Dr. J and Moses or maybe losing to... The Boston Celtics, uh, Maxwell, Maxwell, uh, Bird, McHale, and Parrish, DJ Ainge, Jerry Steesting. Maybe that might sting a little. I don't know. Maybe the Ray Allen, Glenn, uh, Big Dog Robinson, Sam Cassell years. That might be a loss in there. That might still hurt for you guys, man. But uh, considering those who are over the age or under the age of 28, 29, man, this has got to hurt. I mean, this has got to be like, you've got to be flipping kidding me. They were outscored 71 to 49 in the second half. In midway through the third quarter, they were up by 17. In a game five, where if they win, in all intent and purposes, they win the contest. Who knows what happened in game six if they win? I'm not saying it's a fait accompli, but the chances of Milwaukee winning the series if they win game five are astronomical against a wounded. Brooklyn Nets team. If Kevin Durant doesn't go off and become Kevin Durant times 10, I mean, game six, what are we talking about here? We're talking about James Harden legacies being on the line and no fault of his own, Kyrie Irving letting, letting another team down again with injury. But KD went nuclear and the Bucks choked very, uh, very uh, passionately, I might say. Coaching decisions by your coach, Budenholzer. Come on, man. What's up with this? Beyond interesting, I must say. Never been in a Game 5 situation. Never been a coach in the NBA. Can't tell you through my experience of coaching in the NBA, which is zero on any type of level for me to sit there and just, you know, eviscerate Budenholzer and act like I know what I'm doing. But just some of the things, man, from a lamest terms in terms of uh, critiquing NBA coaching is like, what what are, what are we doing here? And I know it's so simplistic to say just double team him and everything is going to be all right. Or, you know, bring in, take out Brooke Lopez and bring in somebody else and everything is going to be fine. But, man, what you were doing was not working. Was some of that because Kevin Durant just played the game of his life? Sure. If Kevin Durant is 60% of what he was on Tuesday night game five, Milwaukee wins this game. If Jeff Green, instead of scoring 27 points, scores 22 points 
on four of eight three-point shots instead of him going unbelievable out of his mind. The Bucks win this game and ultimately win the series possibly. So, look, it took a Herculean effort by multiple Brooklyn Nets for the Milwaukee Bucks to be put in this situation. And then instead of the, you know, accolades or instead of the good vibrations, not like the beat, Beach Boys of the Milwaukee Bucks winning game five, all of a sudden now the ire and the rancor comes to uh, Mike Budenholder and is like, hey man, you know, coach put himself in a situation where, look, it's, it's, you win the series or else you lose your job, period. End of discussion. I haven't been in any type of meetings with the Milwaukee Brass. I don't know what uh, the GM, the president of basketball operations, the owner, the owner I, I don't know. I haven't been privy to any of those conversations and I haven't been part of any of the Milwaukee Bucks organizational plans moving forward. But I, I, I just can't imagine, especially after Giannis signed that five-year uh, extension, I, I can't imagine any way, shape, or form if the Milwaukee Bucks lose the series to the Brooklyn Nets that Bootenholder remains the coach, especially after Game 5 and especially after the way they got their asses whooped in Game 2, especially in the offseason where they brought in so many other pieces. This was supposed to be the time for the Milwaukee Bucks to make it to the NBA Finals at the very least. They have the talent. They have the opportunity. They have the experience. They have the steps that needed to be placed. Very rarely, if ever, in the NBA, do you see a team go from a team that was 500 to winning the championship or a team that was the third seed or the team that was the fifth seed Then the next season they win a championship? If you want to point to a team like the Dallas Mavericks who did that as far as being a lower seed and they beat the Miami Heat, Nowitzki and those guys had taken their lumps. Nowitzki and those guys had been through the journeys. Nowitzki and those guys had been through the battles and the winning and the losing and the ups and the downs and the experience of playing in multiple playoffs together for years upon years upon years. How long did it take Dirk to finally get and win an NBA championship? Dirk was there. When Dallas thought they were going to win the championship with Avery Johnson, when the refs and Dwayne Wade decided that, you know what, that ain't going to be the case. And after blowing a big lead in the third quarter, game three of the 2000, I believe, six NBA championship, the referees and Dwayne Wade went ballistic and nuclear and caused the Miami Heat to win four games in a row to win that championship. Dirk had to bear, Dirk had to you know, get himself out of that wreckage. Dirk had to dig his way out of that hole and through more ups and downs and through more trials and tribulations, through years and years and years, the Dallas Mavericks did what they did against the Miami Heat team, which had more talent, but as a group of LeBron, D-Wade, and Chris Bosh didn't go through the trials and tribulations that a Tyson Chandler and a Jason Kidd and a Jet Terry and a Dirk Nowitzki and those guys did for them to win that championship. So it takes a while, man. It takes it takes steps. There's a reason why Penny Shack, Nick Henderson, and those guys didn't win the championship, constituted the team that they had when they were together. You you can't win it that quickly. You can't you can't sidestep some of the pain and the frustration and the losses that builds that metal, that builds that armor, that builds that experience, that builds that confidence, that builds that basketball player, that human being to be able to respond 
to the moment that they were at right now. You think Kevin Durant, oops, hit the table, sorry. You think Kevin Durant could have given that type of performance in game five if he didn't go through some of the pain of losing in the NBA championship back in the day to the Miami Heat, the pain of losing a three to one lead against the Golden State Warriors, which in effect caused Kevin Durant to go to the Golden State Warriors. You don't think him tearing that Achilles in the NBA Finals, you don't think all of that played a role into him going ahead and having that historical performance that he had in Game 5 on Tuesday night against the um, Milwaukee Bucks? Of course it didn't. Kevin Durant didn't go through all those things. There ain't no way in hell. As great of a player that he is, he could have reached those, those heights, those expectations, that clutch performance. All of that stuff, all of that stuff is mixed into the stew to bring it down to the Milwaukee Bucks to say, okay, we've gone through the pain of losing to the Toronto Raptors when we thought we could have just gone ahead and won a championship. We had thought, I thought we had overcome. We shall overcome. We shall overcome. Losing to Miami in the bubble. We thought that we had gotten over that nonsense when we when we uh, beat them down pretty good. We went out and we made the moves for Jeru Holiday. But for Milwaukee, still, to lose to the Brooklyn Nets without Kyrie, a diminished James Harden, and blowing the lead that they had with the series on the line like this in terms of being in control, being in mass control, that's, an ex that's inexcusable. That's unacceptable. If I'm an owner of a team, if I'm a GM of the team, and I have the talent that the Milwaukee Bucks have moving forward in this journey for the Bucks, I can't go on with Mike Budenholder if the Bucks lose this series. Big picture, it would be correct for the Bucks if they lose six or seven games to the Brooklyn Nets. Understandable for them to say, hey man, look, the window the window isn't closed. We're still going to have an opportunity, man. It, it, we're going to use this. We're going to use this fuel. And I listened to Wendell's World of Sports with, his, with Wendell Wallace doing an awesome job kind of bringing out the examples of, hey man, it takes years Sometimes the painful losses of people saying, well, the window's closed, screw it, we're done. This is never going to happen again. You had your opportunities, time to move on, time to trade this player, try to, you know, this, that, and the other. We, well, there's been multitude of examples of that happening. And then teams, superstars rising from above all that and winning the championship. So if you're the Milwaukee Bucks, losing this series doesn't constitute all of a sudden now, what are we going to do play from a from a player's perspective? Do we need to blow this up? Do we need to make radical changes? But something in terms of a coach, bringing in a coach who can take that team to the next level, that's what it needs, man. The Milwaukee Bucks, if they lose this series, they need a closer as a coach. You know what I'm saying? There's coaches who are good at developing players. There's coaches that you bring in if a team is young and you have a bunch of young guys, maybe a bunch of these guys who you're looking to be the franchise player, who you're looking to be the guy that ultimately is going to put on a performance like Kevin Durant did, that, you know, you need that guy to get him through the first part of his NBA career, to teach him how to be a professional, to teach him how to be a superstar, to teach him everything that comes with being the face of the franchise, a, 
a coach that's going to nurture him and do all those type of things. Get him through the rough times. Get him through the times when the team is not going to be that good. A lot of times these players who are drafted either, well, they're not being drafted from the, um, they're not being drafted from high school, but a lot of these times these players who are drafted after only one year, they've known nothing but success. In high school, they were the shit, their team won all the time. Then they go to Duke, then they go to Kentucky, then they go to Gonzaga, then they go to, hopefully, Georgetown. And you know nothing about winning. I mean, you know nothing about losing. All you do is win, win, win. Then you go to a Minnesota, then you go to an Orlando, then you go to a team which is the worst team in the league. And all of a sudden, for the first time in your life, you're losing. For the first time in your life, you're getting your ass whooped. For the first time in your life, you're just, you know, you're just cannon fodder for some of the elite teams in the league. You need a coach who can kind to navigate that personality, navigate that gem, that jewel, that 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 that, that baby in terms of NBA experience to get through all of that so they can come out smelling like a rose. You know, that's the type of coach sometimes that the franchise needs. That coach very rarely is one that then becomes a championship coach, a coach that becomes a closer. Mike Bootenholder is a coach to where, you know, if you want to get a team to a certain point, that's your guy. But he's proved time and time and time again that he's not a closer. And if the Milwaukee Bucks don't win this series, it only accentuates that point to where, you know what, this team right now is ready to go out and get themselves a coach who has won an NBA championship, <clears throat> Rick Carlisle, or they need to go out and get themselves a coach like like a, like what Pat Riley did when he took over for Stan Van Gundy, who was a good coach, was a coach who could help the young Bucks, who could help bring their franchise to a good number of wins, but he wasn't that type of coach that could win a championship. Pat Riley was a closer, proved it with the Lakers, and he came over and did it with Dwayne Wade, Alonzo Mourning, Shaquille O'Neal, Gary Payton, Jason White, White Chocolate Williams with the Miami Heat. I think with Giannis, I think with all these guys, you guys need a closer. You guys need you guys need a coach who has championship experience because this is a team, I feel, for the next two to three years, have that championship experience. So what are you going to be, Milwaukee? Are we going to be that team like Dallas who finally got over the hump and won a championship? Are you going to be like the Oklahoma City Thunder who had a great squad but never really lived up to expectations? Are you going to be the Portland Trailblazers of Steve Smith and Scottie Pippen and Rasheed Wallace who had Mike Dunleavy as their coach and couldn't get in, who couldn't get it done? Are you going to be like the Sacramento Kings of Chris Webber and Mike Bibby and Vladi Divac and Peja Stojakovic who had... Um, oh my goodness, who was his coach? Who had Rick Adelman as their head coach and couldn't get him done because he was a closer. It's going to be interesting. This stuff about, you know, Giannis should have guarded Durant. Well, I mean, by the time Durant got going, ain't nobody was going to guard Ain't, ain't nobody was going to stop him. And I haven't seen any evidence to where Giannis was supposed to be anywhere close to being, there's no human being on earth who could, who is a quote-unquote KD stopper, but in terms of we need KD to come off this epic run that he's having right now, put Giannis on him. That that wouldn't have helped. No one was stopping Kevin Durant at that point. So you know, I, I I don't I don't know where the overload of all you needed to do was put 
Giannis on him and everything would have been much better. I don't think so. Not only that, Giannis was in foul trouble, so were you looking at him to foul out even sooner? Because coming into that fourth quarter when KD got really hot, Giannis was already in pseudo-foul trouble. So I, I don't know putting the clamps on him would have done any good. I mean, Chris Middleton on him? I mean, who else were you going to put on him? Dante DiVincenzo was the play. He's injured for the playoffs. Maybe Drew Holiday, but Durant would just would have just been able to shoot over him. Hey, man, it's just one of those flipping deals, man. It was just one of those deals where no one was going to stop Kevin Durant. It was a historical, magical performance. That's the reason why we're still talking about it. I don't know if there was anything that Bootenholzer was going to be able to do. What, maybe put in Bobby Portis? Well, you should have taken Lopez out of the game sooner to stop the pick and roll for the switch. They were hunting Lopez, and Lopez was sitting back, so KD was saying, all right, I'll shoot that 17, 19-foot jumper. Fine. Then Lopez would come out a little bit higher, and Durant was like, oh, you're going to go out a little bit higher? Okay, I'll go by your ass. Who was going to be the other guy? That was, who, who, who was Bolton Holder going to put in the game that was going to stop that action? Bobby Portis? Jeff Teague? Giannis's older brother? There was nobody on that squad that was going to stop KD. Now, the offense in the fourth quarter for Milwaukee, horrible, terrible, awful. 11 of the last 17 offensive possessions for Milwaukee were ISOs. Terrible. Some of the When Milwaukee runs bad offense, it's some of the worst-looking offense that you'll ever see because it's just four guys standing around, and it's dribble, 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 Giannis, dribble, 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 thinking, thinking, what should I do, what should I do here? Should I shoot the three? Should I put my head down and plow? Should I, what should, what exactly should I do? Everything Giannis does in terms of when things slow down, when he, when he has to think, it's just that, thinking, 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 thinking. You can tell when he gets the ball in the, defender backs off, especially when he's at the three-point line. You can start seeing him think, what should I do? What should I do? With KD, it's not so much thinking as it is reacting and then doing. And that's from playing basketball your entire life. It's reacting to what the defense is giving you and saying, okay, I'll go ahead and do that. When Kevin Durant gets on the switch, he's not saying, okay, uh, let me see here, thinking, 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 what should I do? It's like, okay, how's this guy going to play me? He's playing me this way. Boom! I'm going to drive, I'm going to shoot, I'm going to pass, I'm going to do, I'm going to play make, I'm going to do this and the other. Giannis, Giannis thinks. So that's why the half-court offense, when Milwaukee balks down to a half-court offense and he gets the ball and he's 23 feet away from the basket, 25 feet away from the basket, and he's dribble, 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 dribble. Middleton and Holiday and Lopez and anybody else is staying there and watching them. And meanwhile, the defense, while he's going dribble, 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 they're already getting in place to say, well, let me let me see here. If he shoots a three-pointer, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. And if he decides to drive, we're going to be right there to um, receive the offensive foul that he's going to be giving. Or maybe a late shot clock pass out for a uh, shot from another Milwaukee buck. But the possessions that Milwaukee had Tuesday, Game 5, Eastern Conference, semifinals, Series side uh, tied at two, had just blown a 17-point lead, dominating through virtually two and two and two-thirds of a quarters. Tied at 91. The Milwaukee Bucks offense, Giannis Iso, Middleton shot a three. Giannis Iso, Giannis turnover, Drew uh, Iso, Middleton Iso, 
Holiday ISO, Giannis ISO, Middleton ISO, Adatupo ISO, Giroux ISO, Giannis ISO, Giannis ISO, Giannis turnover. I mean, that was it. ISO, ISO, ISO. Do we can we run anything? And the major part of that was because the Bucks on defense weren't stopping anybody. I think there was like eight or nine straight possessions where mainly KD and the uh, and the uh, Nets went down and scored, which means Milwaukee's taking the ball out of the basket, which means they're bringing the ball up the floor, which means they're running very little action, and it means that Giannis is going to get the ball or Middleton's going to get the ball, and you're going to have eight eyeballs looking straight at that straight at that guy as he dribbles, 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 dribbles. I mean, Chris Middleton is not a shot creator to where he's going to be getting to the rim on a consistent basis. But he's still out there, you know, 22 feet away, dribble, 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 dribble. I mean, Holiday's not that type of player also. He's a combo He's a combo guard, not truly a point guard, not truly a shooting guard in essence of him, you know, scoring the basketball on a consistent basis. But he's out there, dribble, 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 dribble. And it's like, I mean, you know, what, what are we doing here? What are we doing here? And you heard me talk about Giannis, so... You know, I, 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 I would, I'm not a coach again, but I, I, I know that Bootenholzer is a guy who was telling Giannis, shoot the three, shoot the three, shoot the three, because if you shoot the three, even if you're not good at it, it'll give you more opportunities to uh, drive. It'll open up the driving lanes. It'll open up the free flowingness of the game to get other shooters involved. We're at the point now where man, Giannis is shooting, I don't know what, negative 16% from the three point range. On five attempts, when was the last time Giannis had a game where he shot three for five from the three-point line, four for seven from the three-point line, three for seven from the three-point line? When was the game where you just, if you were the other team, you looked up and said, fuck it, Giannis beat us from the three-point line. Ain't nothing you can do about that. Better than him mowing down to the uh, basket and dunking on everybody. Look, he shot 14 for 22 from the field, game five. 34 points, 12 rebounds. Made four of the seven free throws. And he was even two for four from the three-point line. That's great. That's wonderful for Giannis. But when the game was at where it was, when Milwaukee was doing their thing and having their way on offense and this, that, and the other, Adenokupo was comfortable. Adenokupo was confident. Adenokupo was free-flowing. Because... Who gives a fuck if I miss a couple of three-pointers? We're up by 17. <laughs> you know, who cares? Who cares if I miss free throws from the free throw line if we're up by 15 or 18 in the third quarter? Fine, no big deal. But when the game started to get tight, what happened? What happened, to be honest? He's not that guy. He's awesome. He's a great player. But when you're shooting 13% from the three-point range in the playoffs on almost five, Attempts per game and shooting 51% from the free throw line. How effective are you? And don't tell me it doesn't get into its head. He's a strong young man. And this, that, and the other. I heard them talking about when he misses free throws, it's no big deal. He really doesn't. He takes it in stride because, you know, where he came from and how he grew up and how poor he was. And, oh, my goodness gracious, this is great. We're in the NBA and I'm making all this money and I've got all this acclaim and all this, that, and the other. So, you know, missing a free throw doesn't bother me. And it's like, come on, man. Just stop, stop, stop. Stop, stop it, stop it. You know, you're, you're thinking about it. You're, you're, you are thinking about it. Because I bet you one thing, he doesn't shoot 51% from the free throw line 
after practice when he's shooting free throws. So 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 stop with the oh yeah no big deal I just you know that's my uh, I'm not missing free throws because I'm a little bit nervous or I'm thinking about it or it's in my head or anything like that because you know I, where I came from and the racism I faced in Greece and what my parents went through and what we went through as a children and this that and the other and the hardship that uh, you know missing free throws is no big deal I'm still able to sleep well at night but the fuck nah, don't believe that one Wendell's World in Sports I'm your host Wendell Wallace so glad that you could be with us very quickly. Let me get to the uh, Philadelphia 76ers. I, I, I just, you know, I always talk about Black America's head coach, Doc Rivers. And Rick Carlisle just said, Cianara said, you know, I'm no longer going to be the coach of the Dallas Mavericks. I see a lot of similarities between Doc and Rick Carlisle. Just in terms of, I, I think they're very good coaches. I think that they are. I think they're elite coaches. I do. I'll, I'll, I'll stand by that. But I think a lot of the oh, let's not criticize Doc or let's not criticize Carlisle, it's because of the championships that they won. If Rivers fails with this team after blowing the lead that they did, I'll, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I watched that game. When it got to be in the 20s, I turned over and started watching guys' grocery games. I did. And I would just check back every blue moon just to see what the game was like. And it was like, you know, 18, 20, 22, 19. And I said, well, Trey Young ain't no Kevin Durant. So um, no need for me to really be totally engaged in this game. Well, started watching a little bit more guys' grocery games. Turned it back. I believe it was seven, eight minutes in the fourth quarter. I saw it with 13 points. I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> I mean, I was really enjoying I was really enjoying the show on the Food Network channel, but I was like, ah, just in case. Just in case, because this is Doc Rivers. This is Joel Embiid. We saw what happened in game four. So uh, let's just kind of stick around and see what happens. And sure enough, don't know, man. When you know, with Joel Embiid, I think we're looking at a guy here where you know, we want him, I want him to be 45 minutes of sound and fury and domination. I don't think that he can uh, give you that type of performance. Healthy, non-healthy, whatever, man. I think Joel's tank is, I think Joel's game of domination is built for like 28, 32 minutes. And then after that, you know, I don't know how you adjudicate the minutes. I don't know where it comes from, but somehow, someway, Joel Embiid, I don't know, man. I mean, it's like, how do, how do we get this guy to be like, look, you know, in the at the six-minute mark of the fourth quarter, I just need you to be just tearing shit up, man. I just need you to be destroying things like Godzilla destroyed Japan. I just need you just to just, just be dominant like you were in the first half. In the first half, Joel Embiid was unflipping stoppable. Unstoppable. But then again, for the second time in a row, Joel Embiid takes a hard foul. Everyone gasps. <gasps> He gets back up, he's limping, he's wincing, and he disappears. And it's, is it the injury? Is it, I mean, before it was, is he in shape? Is the injury because he's not in shape? What's going on here? I think Joel Embiid is just Joel Embiid in terms of, look, I can give you about 28 minutes of dominance, and that, that's about it. Not 28 minutes in a row, but somehow, some way, you know, that's as much as I'm going to give you. So what are we going to do here? I mean, it's radical, it's outside the box, it's ridiculous, and then we get the coach fired, but it's like, 
Well, you know, for the first half, Joel, I'm going to play you like eight, eight minutes. And then in the third quarter, I'm going to play you like six minutes. And then in the fourth quarter, I need you to go just, I'm just going to just, you know, ride you like, well, let me, let me keep it, let me keep it uh, PG. I'm, I'm just going to, I'm just going to ride you, man. I'm just going to uh, put the ball in your hand and just say, go, go, go and dominate, dominate, dominate. I don't know. I don't know. But it's crazy. But it's absolutely crazy. So, yeah, man, for the Eastern Conference, it's rip, it's roaring, it's wild. The New York, the, the um, Milwaukee Bucks, go out and find yourself a coach when this series is over. Win or lose, whenever your season's over, go find yourself a closer as a coach. And the Philadelphia 76ers, I'll be speaking about them on my next podcast. You go down to Atlanta 3-2. to two. Man, what's the ramifications if you lose this series? To the flipping Atlanta Hawks. Can Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid exist? Daryl Morey, uh, you know, the Morey-Rivers relationship, how is that looking? How is that going to work if Philadelphia massively underachieves and loses to Atlanta? It'll be interesting. So wait and see. The Eastern Conference, drama galore, Eyeballs fixated on those conferences semifinals. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. Bonjour, bonsoir, monsieur, mademoiselle. Je m'appelle Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World in Sports. So glad that you could be with us. Namaste, konnichiwa, wassalam alaikum, my brothers and my sisters. Konnichiwa, what's going on, man? Que pasa, mi amigos, mi amo, Wendell Wallace. Wendell's World in Sports, so glad that you could be with us. Speaking about what's happening in the NBA, speaking about what's going down in the NBA playoffs, second round, Eastern Conference, wild, crazy, unbelievable. Moving now to, look, very quickly in the Western Conference, man, you know, playoff P, give him some credit. Come on, man, give, play, give Paul George some credit. I told you, I didn't say Paul George was going to play like this. And in game one against the Jazz, where he shot for four, for 17 and couldn't take advantage of having Rudy Gobert out on the perimeter, the fact that uh, he didn't look like anything spectacular, man. But after game two, he's been absolutely fantastic, unbelievable. I'll get to Kawhi and I'll get to um, his injury and the long-term effects or the impact that it'll, it'll have on the L.A. Clippers. But Paul George has been playing out of his mind. I'm not going to compare what he did uh, game five against Utah to anything that Kevin Durant did, but it was incredibly impressive when you're speaking about what 37 points and 16 rebounds or something like that and um playing with a chip on his shoulder man good for him good for him but uh you know utah 
Mr. Mike Connolly. It's, it's, it's interesting the fact that James Harden can go out on one leg and play 46 minutes and have an impact just in terms of how he's helping the team overall. And Mike Connolly, I, I don't know the extent of his injury. I don't know how hurt he is, but wouldn't you think for game six that Mike Connolly would at least give it a try? Now, we know that the training staff for the Utah Jazz is a little bit shaky if you remember the way they handled Donovan Mitchell's ankle injury after uh, before game one in their first round against the Memphis Grizzlies. But, I mean, if I'm Mike Connolly, if I'm Quinn Snyder, if I'm the guys, I'm like, hey, man, you got to go out there game six. This is the, you know, this is the most important game that we'll have up to now. So you you got to at least try it. Give us something. Unless he really can't do anything. He can't run. He can't plant. He can't cut. Well, James Harden can't do the same thing. But really no, really no update on what's going on with Mike Connolly and his injury. But uh, you have Donovan Mitchell who's battling ankle injuries. Now he's playing the point guard. And um, he's taking some crazy-ass shots. And the offense just seems to be bogged down to ISO, ISO, ISO. Joe English hasn't been playing well, while, you know, uh, Royce O'Neal has been playing hard and out of his mind in terms of uh, giving effort and intensity. Man, you know, I, you, you got to start getting some more offense. You start, you got to start creating more offense. Not Royce O'Neal, but, I mean, just as far as, you know, when you start getting into the half court, now one of the more premier defensive players in Kawhi Leonard is going to be out. The Clippers still have Paul George, who have been playing much better defense than he did trying to go up against a bigger, stronger Luka Dantich in the first round with the Clippers' victory against Dallas in that series in seven games. But, you know, both offensively and defensively, he's been playing great. He's been playing, taking advantage of some of the lackluster play on defense by the Utah Jazz. It was nice to actually see the road team actually not forget to pack their defense for the trip to the other team's home court because if you take a look at the first two series, well, the first two games, the defense was not great. And then Utah, in their two games in L.A., was absolutely putrid on the defensive end. So, gutty, gritty performance against the Jazz by the Clips without Leonard for game five. And I thought, actually, Gobert played reasonably well. Yeah, I mean, he got, you know, pseudo-dunked on by Terrence Mann and... Reggie Jackson made an end one against him and finished a couple at the rim. But for the most part, man, when you're speaking about Rudy Gobert going out 25, 26 feet away from the basket, I mean, it was a situation where, look, not only does it take him away from the basket or not only does it add a little bit of an advantage to the offensive guy because he's going on the run or he's, you know, getting a, a head start in terms of taking it to the basket on Gobert, it also tires out Rudy. In terms of if you're playing position, if you're playing defensive possession after defensive possessions where you're coming 25 feet away from the basket and it's going to have to guard someone one-on-one -on -one time after time after time, eventually in the fourth quarter, that's going to wear you out. And I think that was one of the reasons in terms of uh, why Jackson got a three-point play on him, why Mann got to the basket and scored on him, and opened up that middle to where that corner three left side shot was open for the Clippers all night long. So if you're Snyder, exactly what exactly do you do in terms of do you keep uh, Gobert on the floor because George Niang has given you nothing. Derek Favors really hasn't made an impact yet. So it's almost out of necessity, despite the fact that, you know, the Clippers in the fourth quarter were starting to make some hay 
on the offensive side when that switch happened with them and Gobert that you, you still got to keep Rudy on the floor because I wouldn't go small if I'm the Utah Jazz. I'm not going small against that Clipper squad, even without Kawhi in the game. Reggie Jackson played out of his mind. Jeff Greenish in game five against Utah. Terrence Mann played well. Marquise Morris had a good game four at home where he put up 20-something points in the first half. Luke Kennard has been able to hit some shots. And, uh, you know, so far for the Utah Jazz, defense hasn't been there. And uh, as I mentioned before, Donovan Mitchell, not close to being 100%, asking him not only to carry the offense and make hero shots on a consistent basis, but also play the point guard position, which you see at deficiencies from that, when you see the lack of rhythm, when you see the lack of touches, when you see the lack of scoring opportunities for guys who could get quality looks throughout the game on a semi-consistent basis if Mike Connolly was in the game. And you also have to remember that Connolly against the Grizzlies was giving you close to 18, 19 points per game. So not only do you lose his playmaking, you also lose another opportunity for a 17, 18 point per game night guy to uh, help the Utah Jazz in a guy who can break down the defense. Jordan Clarkson, and I mentioned before, Donovan Mitchell shooting step back contested threes over Nicholas Batum and the long arms of Paul George and those guys. I mean, that's that's not sustainable. That's not sustainable the way that the Utah Jazz are playing without that point guard. It's not, it's not going to work. That doesn't travel well, especially if you're not going to get anything from the three-point line with Joe Inglis. Carol Link, uh, uh, Bogdanovich has been good he's been solid but you need a little bit more than that so it'll be interesting to see one of the truly truly elite coaches in the nba quinn snyder let's see how he adjusts to which uh right now tyron lou is also looking like he's moving his way up very quickly to what we should be considering one of the elite coaches in the nba if they can go ahead and pull this off beating the number one seed the best record in the nba winning this series, which was basically the best two out of the three without one of the best players in the league and the heart and soul of their team. And one could argue the main reason why the Clippers made it to the second round after being down 3-2 to two against the Dallas Mavericks. If Tyron Lue, facing all of those obstacles and facing all of those difficulties, can coach his team to the Western Conference Finals, yeah, man, Tyron Lue already an NBA champion. Yeah, let's move him up there to elite status in terms of NBA coaching is concerned or is defined. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So, come on, man, who's going to win the NBA championship here? Seems like, what, the team that can survive, overcome injuries, absent of their best player, one of their core players? Take a look at this nonsense, man. Just take Philadelphia dealing with Joel Embiid, his knee injury. Danny Green is out. He's injured with a uh, ankle injury. Or Joel um, uh, torn meniscus. Utah been playing without Mike Connolly for the entire Clipper series, as I mentioned before. And Donovan Mitchell is, do- is battling ankle injuries. Brooklyn mentioned without Kyrie severely diminished. James Harden. Atlanta is without three and D guy DeAndre Hunter with a shoulder injury. Milwaukee has been playing the entire uh, postseason without Dante Divincenzo. He's out for the entire playoffs. The Phoenix Suns. We don't know now with Chris Paul, who started the playoffs with a hurt shoulder, which we thought would be the death nail for the Suns in the first round against the L.A. Lakers when they went down two games to one. Well, he overcame that, played out of his flipping mind against the Denver Nuggets, and now 
he might be out for a period of time with corona-related issues. So we'll get into that mess. So every team, it seems like, is dealing with, you know, something with attrition in terms of which team is going to be able to survive its own limitations because of injuries more than anything else. And that brings us to the devastating news for the Los Angeles Clippers, as I mentioned before, Kawhi Leonard couldn't mess. There's situation now. There's talk now that I've read in multiple outlets, media outlets, that Kawhi Leonard might have a torn ACL. Jeez, man, what the flip? You never flipping know. Going into a going into a um, contract season, also a contract summer, also might be out with an ACL. Now, the Clippers are going to resign him, of course. But damn, man, that absolutely sucks. Um, he missed Wednesday's game five against the Jazz with a right knee injury. As I mentioned before, it could be out the remainder of the series. He suffered a right knee sprain in their game four victory over the Jazz. And more imaging needs to be done to determine the severity of the sprain ligament after the swelling subsides. So we won't even know exactly the extent of the injury, how bad it is until a little bit later on. But I mean, we're speaking about Kawhi, one of the top 10 players in the NBA, averaging 25 points, 6 rebounds, 5 assists during the regular season. And then, as I mentioned before, I've stepped it up in the postseason where he was averaging 30 points, 7 rebounds, 4 assists, and 2 steals a game. And was the leading man, starring man, the Denzel, the Tom Hanks, the Michael Douglas, the Sidney Poitiers, the Spencer Tracy, the Humphrey, Humphrey Bogart. I sound like uh, Steve Lavin doing this bullshit. But basically, he was the main guy for the uh, Clippers against the Dallas Mavericks. So, if you're speaking about can the Clippers recover from this? Well, they did for one game because Paul George played great. Reggie Jackson shot out of his mind. And Terrence Mann stepped up. But... If we're speaking about long-term as far as this playoff rush is concerned, well, Paul George has had three great games against the best team in the NBA. I mean, how long can he sustain this? If we're speaking about how long can the great Kevin Durant, the best basketball player on planet Earth or any other planet um, that we know of, if we're questioning how, how much more does he have left to be carrying a basketball team, what can we say about then Paul George? If Paul George is going to be able to play like this for the entire series, for the entire playoffs, because even if he does, what others of the others is going to step up? Because if you're a guy who's just going to be putting up tremendous numbers like Paul George did for the first three games and really not getting any help from his teammates, well, then you're just you're just Luka Dantich in the Dallas Mavericks. Luca's putting up 40, 15, and 9, and no one else is really doing anything. And that's why the Dallas Mavericks are sitting at home, and Luca now is probably going to be um, probably going to be labeled a coach killer and a diva. So it's great that Paul George play off P. He has shut up a lot of naysayers, me included, who said, fuck you, Wendell, I'll show you play off P, bitch. And he's uh, putting up some numbers, and he, his impact is tremendous. Awesome. But again... The Clippers don't win that game if Reggie Jackson doesn't shoot as well as he did. If Terrence Mann didn't play as well as he did. So if those guys can't replicate or come close to the type of performance that they had in Game 5, does it really matter? Can Paul George even elevate his game even more to compensate for maybe a game where the others 
don't pick up the slack like they need to. So it comes down to that. We'll see what happens. Same thing with the um, Utah Jazz. Hey, man, you, you, Donovan Mitchell is doing all that he can. But again, Mike Connolly. And again, I don't know the extent of his injury. But game six, if it's possible, can you give it a whirl? Can you give it a try? I mean, shit, in the 89 finals, Magic Johnson stepped out for game three with a hamstring injury. Thing was wrapped up. He was limping around like a like a limpity limper. Played only a few minutes. It was like, nah, this ain't happening. Done. I mean, come on, Mike. If you lose this game, your season's over. So give it a shot. Even if it's for a jump ball, a couple of possessions, nah, this ain't working. Let's go somewhere else. At least give it a shot. Give your teammates some encouragement. Shit, Willis Reed, Game 7, NBA Finals against the Los Angeles Lakers. Come on, man. You know, James Harden in this playoff. Come on, man. Give it a shot. Give it a whirl. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Chris Paul. Chris Paul's playing career. Let me let's, 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 let me let me say this. Chris Paul's playoff playing career is like a soap opera. It really is. As the world turns with Chris Paul, it's like he gets out of one fire and then gets into another. Just when you think that you're, you know, up there dancing on the ceiling or dancing in the street like Martha and the Vandellas, all of a sudden, you know, the, uh, the, the, the freight train comes over and rolls over your ass. Chris Paul is going to be out indefinitely while in protocol. Phoenix Suns coach Monty Williams wouldn't say whether he expected Paul to be available for Game 3 in the Western Conference Finals. And the Suns said that Paul's status will be evaluated again Saturday. And Williams said that he and Paul have talked daily about this and has talked daily about what's going on. I'm telling you, man. Chris Paul, I, I, I said this on Twitter. And yeah, I'm on Twitter. W-E-N-D-E-L-L, fools. But um, I said this on Twitter after the game four against the, the elimination game against the Denver Nuggets. I said that if this was wrestling, this would be the official face turn for Chris Paul. There was a long while, there was a long run for Chris Paul where, you know, people are always whining and complaining about rivalries. There's no good rivalries. Teams don't hate each other anymore because of free agency. And these guys have been playing with each other since AAU. So they grow up being friends and they make the league. They still remain friends and they have the same agent and they hang out with the same posse and they go to the same clubs and they have the same shoe brand and all of this stuff. And now because of the Olympics, these guys get to know each other better. And all of a sudden now the, the harsh, the aggressive, the mean spirited, the I hate you rivalries, those, those no longer exist in the NBA. Well, for a while there, if you were looking for a team that all the rest of the teams could hate and build rivalries, just look at any team that Chris Paul was on. Because it seemed like any time Chris Paul was on a team, if we're speaking especially with the Los Angeles Clippers, that Clipper team of Doc Rivers whining and complaining on every single call that didn't go its way, Blake Griffin's prima donna posing candy ass, and then you had DeAndre Jordan, and then you had Chris Paul, no one liked the Clippers. No one liked the Clippers. I'm talking about other NBA teams. No one liked them. Memphis with Zach Randolph and Tony Allen and Mike Connolly and Paul Gasol and uh, uh, Gasol's little brother, Mark Gasol. Those rivalries with the Clippers, they hated each other. 
the um, Portland Trailblazers with Chris Paul hated each other. So if you're looking for rivalries, it was always like find a team that Chris Paul is on, watch that team play, watch Chris Paul play, and then you'll just naturally hate the, that team because you'll hate Chris Paul. That was Chris Paul, the Houston Rockets. You hated Chris Paul. You already had a guy that you didn't like, James Harden, because of the way that he played offense. Now you're bringing Chris Paul with his little sneaky antics and his bullshit, so you didn't like him. So Chris Paul was always that natural heel in terms of wrestling terms. that You just didn't like the team that Chris Paul was on because you didn't like Chris Paul. Now, with the Phoenix Suns, it's almost like you're starting to root. That's one of the main storylines for this NBA playoff season. The turnaround, or shouldn't say turnaround, but Chris Paul in a couple of uh, people's eyes, and a couple of NBA people's eyes, and the media's eyes, and the talking points' eyes, he was left for dead. When he got traded from Houston to go to uh, OKC, his career was over. Fuck it, forget it. He's done, finished. He'll never be that type of player again. Then he goes to Oklahoma City, and people are like, well, he'll never last there. I mean, you know, him and Billy Donovan aren't going to see eye to eye, and, you know, he's going to Oklahoma City. It's not a big city market, and, you know, Oklahoma City is a young rebuilding team who's not really looking about winning championships or anything like that. So Chris Paul... I mean, he'll never last there. He's not going to last in a small pond like Oklahoma City with such a low expectations. Expect for the Thunder to trade him or let him go or do this, that, and the other. Plus, as I mentioned before, Paul was never thought to be able to go to the level that he ascended to after that trade to Oklahoma City from Houston. He did just that. He was a major player in terms of the Oklahoma City Thunder exceeding expectations and getting into the... Um, playoffs in the bubble before losing to the Houston Rockets in seven games. Then he goes over to Phoenix and he becomes the best natural point guard in the NBA. Now, he didn't make first team because you can say Kyrie and you can say Damian Lillard. Those guys are scoring point guards. But if you're looking for pure old school point guards where you don't measure their importance or their impact on the team by shot attempts and points and, and, and those type of things, Chris Paul being the leader of that team, Chris Paul being the elder sage of that team, Chris Paul being the professional of that team, Chris Paul having the respect of the players on that team because of what he's accomplished throughout his career, elevated his team to uh, major status. And guess what? You didn't hate the Denver, you didn't hate the Phoenix Suns when you watched Phoenix play this season. You were like, I like these guys. I mean, I, I like despite the fact that he's dating Kendall Jenner. I like Devin Booker. I mean, I like DeAndre Ayton. I like Mikael Bridges, who every time he hits a three, breaks out in a grin. I like the toughness of a Jay Crowder. I like Monty Williams' class and the story of Monty Williams being on the bench and having success. I like this team. And Chris Paul was at the centerpiece of it. And against the Nuggets, he was playing some of his best basketball that you could ever imagine. 25 and a half points, shot 62% from the field, 58% from the three-point line, made all of his free throws, had a 41 to 5 assist-to-turnover ratio. And now this happens. Don't know what's going to happen moving forward with Chris Paul. I really don't. But it's, it's just so good to see this opportunity right now. Now, you could say that, look, man, they played a diminished Los Angeles Lakers team with LeBron being injured, Anthony Davis, game four, going down, which basically said the series was going to turn into the favor 
of the Phoenix Suns. They played the Denver Nuggets. Okay, great. They swept the Denver Nuggets. Great. But Jamal Murray wasn't playing. I mean, you had Chris Paul being guarded by some Argentinian guy, some 30-year-old rookie, rookie from the Argentinian leagues. Then you had um, then you had Norris trying to guard him. And then you also had Austin Rivers trying to guard him. Uh, how can Chris Paul not be dominant? How can the Phoenix Suns not be great in this situation? So let's see whether they play the Utah Jazz or the LA Clippers. Let's see what they can do. But shit. If Kawhi's going to be out for the rest of the playoffs, the Clippers are going to be diminished from the Clippers that we knew going into the playoffs. And with the Utah Jazz, we don't know. Because Mike Connolly, I think, is the key to the success of the Clippers. Excuse me, of the, uh, of the Jazz. So moving forward, hey, there's no... You, you could say without question that, yeah, the Phoenix Suns right now are... You could say without question they're the hottest team in the league. They've won seven games in a row. Are they the favorites? Are they the best team? Are they the, the team that's playing the best basketball right now? Who knows? When you're speaking about game to game, quarter to quarter, possession to possession, when you have stars like Donovan Mitchell, stars like Paul George, stars, the ultimate star in Kevin Durant, I mean, your seven-game winning streak could all be kaput because Kevin Durant decides that he wants to flex his skinny muscles and become the best basketball player. Remind people how great that he is. That Paul George might still be on his revenge tour and Reggie Jackson might shoot the hell out of the ball and Nicholas Batum might shoot the hell out of the corner three and Terrence Mann might be the X Factor. So who knows, man? Who knows? But as of right now, the story of Chris Paul, we can speak about in these playoffs we can speak about the we can speak about the injuries and we can speak about all these other things that might have brought down the excitement level of the NBA. But as far as storylines are concerned, positives, Monty Williams, Chris Paul, and the Phoenix Suns, they're definitely in that category leading the pack. Well, I'm the jibber, jabber, jaw like shabber. Ranks making banks operating like trapper. John and me, yeah, that's what folks tell me. I plan on going far and be a star like Marcus Welby. So there, there, uh-huh. You suit, though, yes, I mix the buckets, scores and buckets like Menudo or Judo. I gets it, I throws them when I gamble. And when I swings my thing, I takes a swing like Mickey Mantle. But um, I got more flavors in a pack an hour later. Beg your pardon, Mr. Cuba, but I love vanilla wafers. See, I got it going on because of the songs that I write. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Final segment of the podcast, saving my coaching talk. There's a whole lot of coaches getting fired. There's a whole lot of coaches leaving. Steve Clifford, Scott Brooks, uh, Rick Carlisle just said he's not coming back to the um, to the Dallas Mavericks. John Calipari is talking about, yeah, you know what? I'll be open to hear some uh, folks uh, talk about... Uh, head coaching positions in the NBA. I'll, I'll, I'll take a listen. I'll listen to the phone, all of these things going on. Whole lot of movement 
in the NBA in terms of uh, coaches moving, going on. So I will save that talk for another podcast coming up soon. Please remember that in two days, June 19th, uh, which is, what is June 19th? Is that a Saturday? Saturday, right? It's a Saturday, right? Yeah. Saturday, please uh, take a moment of silence in remembrance of my hero, of them all, the great, the awesome Len Bias. 1986 died of a accidental cocaine overdose. Fuck you, Brian Tribble. But uh, he was going to be better than Jordan. Now, maybe the cocaine problem that he had might have slowed him down once he hit the league. But I don't give a damn what anybody says. As far as players are concerned, in, in, in the ACC history, Len Bias of Maryland was a better basketball player than North Carolina's Michael Jordan. Now, maybe once we got to the NBA style of play, Jordan was unleashed because he was no longer being held back, if you want to say, by Dean Smith, who's the only player, who's the only person in basketball history who ever held Michael Jordan to under 20 points a game, Dean Smith. So, look, you know, who knows what would have happened. And as I mentioned before, Len Bias could have gone the way of Roy Tarpley and Chris uh, Washburn and William Bedford and the rest of those guys because he was snorting the white stuff. But, uh, you know, from the Prince George's County, Maryland, Len Bias, Lenny Bias, that was, uh, that was our guy. And for me, June 19th, it's always something where it's kind of like, where were you doing? Where were you? What were you doing? All of those things. Every, every... Uh, every day of that date, I think about that in terms of man waking up in the morning and my boy David O'Neill calling me up, talking about it. You hear the news, Len Bias just died. You got to remember, this is 1986, so there was no, there was no cable, there was no cell phones, there was no social media, there was no 24-hour access, none of that kind of stuff. So, you know, we had the radio, we had the local news, and basically that's about it. So. When O'Neill called me up that Saturday morning, I was going to go out. School had just ended. was going to go out, shoot some baskets before the weather got too hot in D.C. So I was going to go up to the park and, um, you know, practice my Len Bias, practice my turnaround jumping Bernard King, practice my ball handling like um, Magic Johnson, practice my outside shooting like Byron Scott and Ricky Pierce. And I'm uh, going to do my thing, you know, practice my uh, James Worthy, spin move like James Worthy. So, you know, I was going to get into my uh, bag of tricks going into my senior year. I was going to do everything I could to impress uh, the Marcy Andrews and the uh, Josette Durios and the uh, Monica Spans of the world who went to Kennedy High School at that time. So I was going to go out there and become the super huge basketball player and have all those absolute beauties fall in love with me. Yes, I was dumb. Yes, I was unrealistic. Yes, I was out of my mind. But hey, just like Martin Luther King said, a man can dream. So, you know, dedicated my summer to being the best basketball player I could, tried to fulfill my dream of going to Georgetown University and play for John Thompson, and then eventually get drafted by the Los Angeles Lakers. A man can dream, no matter how ridiculous, no matter how far-fetched, no matter the odds being immeasurable, a man can dream. Got me out in the morning, got me to do something, got me away from doing anything stupider than what I was doing at that age. So, went down to the park, was getting ready to go down to the my, go down to the park. My um, my stepbrother from another mother, Dave O'Neill, calls me up, and says, "Man, did you hear the news?" I was like, "What's up, man? Len Bias just died." What? 
Yeah, Lem Bias just died. What? <laughs> what the hell are you talking about, O'Neal? I mean, <laughs> I mean, the guy just got drafted by the Boston Celtics. I'm going to have to like the Celtics now a little bit because of Bird McHale and all that kind of shit. You know, I hate the Celtics because of the Lakers, but, you know, I'm going to have to like them a little bit because Lenny's my boy. 34, that's my number. I mean, what, what the fuck are you talking about? You know, what, what, are, what are you saying? The man just had the game of, uh, you know, just had an awesome game against Pepperdine in his last game for the University of Maryland in the NCAA uh, tournament second round. What the hell are you talking about? Well, that's what I heard. You know, it was on the radio, this, that, and the other. I was like, well, all right, all right. Look, I'll go ahead. I'll play this game. I've got nothing better to do this morning. What exactly did Lenny Bias, 22 years old, 6'8", 240 pounds, or 20 pounds, chiseled, incredible physique, can jump out of the gym, the most beautiful jump shot you'll ever see, six foot eight. You know, as a, a Adonis of a physique, what did Lem Bias die of? And at the time, it was reported. This was before it was reported that it, you know, he died of uh, cocaine overdose. So the f- initial news was that he died of a heart attack. So when O'Neill told me he died of a heart attack, I was like, "Get the fuck, get O'Neill, get the fuck out of here! Don't even joke about that bullshit. Someone's feeding you some bullshit." Someone is, you know, and it, it ain't true. Lem Bias, 22 years old. Have you seen the man recently? See that he was drafted by the Boston Celtics? Have you seen his physique? Have you seen his jump shot? Have you seen how high he can get up in the air? Have you seen him, period? He died of a heart attack? I can understand getting hit by a train, being shot, whatever. A heart attack? Get out of here, man. This, that, and the other. He's like, well, that's what I heard, man. So I'm just letting you know. All right, man. I'll, I'll, you know, I'll talk to you a little bit later on. Remember, this is before cell phones. He called me up at my house. My mom was at work. My dad was at work. I was out of school. This, that, and the other. Bullshit. This, that, and the other. It just kept sticking with me, though. Why the, Why would? Why would O'Neill tell me that? I mean, he loves Lenny just as much as I do. Why? Why would he say some nonsense like that? He said he heard it on the radio. Ah, that can't be true. It can't be. All right, I'm just going to turn on the radio. Before I go, I'm just going to turn on the radio. Fuck it. I mean, this is just nonsense. Turn to uh, 95.3 WKYS, Donnie Simpson. As soon as I turn it on, you know, the playing the hymns, there's like, you know, our condolences to the Louise and Len Bias, their family, you know, on the untimely death of their son, Lenny, you know, Leonard Bias, this, that, and the other. And, and, and when I heard that, two things happened. I, like, a piece of me emotionally died right there. It, it, I, I just, no, 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 what? This can't, this can't be happening. This can't, no, he just signed with the, he just got drafted by the Celtics. No, then as soon as I heard that news, I swear, not just two minutes later, the phone rang. It was my dad. Did you hear about Len Bias? Can't believe this was terrible. Phone rang. My brother, Mikel Davis, called. Did you hear about Len Davis? Len Bias? This is unbelievable. This, that, and the other. After that, my mom, who doesn't know anything about sports, no interest in sports, she called from work. Did you hear about Len Bias? This was unbelievable. This is terrible. And it's like eight or nine other people that morning in the span of like an hour called. It was like, can you believe this? Can you believe this? I mean, again, we're living in a time here. I'm living in a time when he died where, you know, you couldn't go on Facebook and post this. 
You couldn't go on Twitter. You couldn't make a TikTok video. You couldn't go on Instagram. You couldn't do any of this stuff. You know, you couldn't turn on CNN or ESPN or uh, PBS or Fox Sports or CNBC. You couldn't do any of that stuff to find out. Now, my stupidity, I should have turned on the television because as soon as I heard the news and this, that, and the other, I turned on the television and local news, Channel 4, Channel 5, Channel 7, Channel 13 in Baltimore, they were all talking about this and this, that, and the other. So as soon as O'Neill told me that he died of a cocaine, of a, of, a, of a heart attack and all this kind of stuff, what my stupid ass should have done was just turn on the television and I could have found out right there. But, you know, when you're young and you're dumb, mer. But uh, it was just, I, it, 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 it was just, I mean, still today. I mean, the man died, what, 86? So we're speaking about a long time ago, uh, 30-something years ago. I'll never get over it. I mean, I'll, I'll, it'll, it'll also always be emotionally like, wow, for me. It's something where it's like, damn, man. It's like fucking unbelievable that day. And I remember for a week, me and Mikhail, Steve Smith, Cliff Clever, Hayden Witter, Joe Bolding. I mean, we were all just, all, all you know, O'Neal, all the folks that we played basketball with during the summer, you know, mornings. Then we hung out with each other at the houses when it got too hot, when it got too humid. Then we would go back home for a quick second, let our parents know that we're still alive, and then we'd meet up and uh, go walk and go walk to uh, Foxhall Courts with the quarters, put them in, play basketball. I think twenty-five cents for fifteen minutes. So we put them quarters in and play basketball at night. You know, because it was a lot cooler. Go over to Argyle, go over to uh, Sligo, go over to Hillendale, looking for games, looking for pickup games, looking for five on five games during the summer. Walking everywhere for the most part, we were like grounded, man. When we found out Lenny died, we just all like kind of like stared at each other like, like zombies. Like what, what, what just happened here? What's going on? I mean, it's devastating. It was devastating. Absolutely. For my generation who played basketball and who didn't even play basketball. For my generation, the generation a couple of years after me, especially in the D.C. area. It was like, uh, you know, it was like one of those where everybody around that time period who lived in D.C. will always have the where were you when Lem Bias died story. Anybody who grew up in in that area, they all have a where were you when Lem Bias died story. And if you're anywhere between 48 now, 48 and... uh, 57, 58, maybe early 60s, you'll still re- you'll still remember that day if you lived in that area. Basketball fan or no basketball fan, you'll still remember that day. The man was going to be better than Jordan. The man, I swear, the man was going to be better than Jordan. Lenny Bias, my hero, my ultimate hero, right up there with Ali, right up there with uh, Arthur Ashe, Right up there with those guys. I mean, historically, Lem Bias. Still hurts. Still, 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 still hurts. Mm, mm, mm. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Let me uh, let me end with this because I want to just give a uh, little last-minute shout-out to the Los Angeles Lakers. What are they going to be doing this summer? I'll make it very quick. Look, I... You know, what, what, what's, what's going to be happening? 
Because we can kind of break this down. We can kind of break this. We can kind of talk about this in so many stages. Because the way the Lakers ended, you would think about, well, there's some changes that need to be happening. There's some trades that need to be made. There's some things that we really have to think about as far as moving forward is concerned. We also have to remember that there was a time that before what happened in March, before what happened on that fateful day in L.A., March 20th in the game against Atlanta when the Lakers were 28-13. and 13. They were one of the best teams in the NBA. LeBron was playing like an MVP. And the Lakers were the clear favorites to win the Western Conference. They were still winning basketball games despite the fact that uh, a little while before what happened on March 20th that Anthony Davis had re-injured or had uh, aggravated his Achilles against Denver on a drive left side against Nikola Jokic. He pulled up lame and had to leave and they were talking about, you know what, we're just going to play this safe, we're just going to play this easy, we're going to play this very cautiously. Even after that, the Lakers were playing good basketball. The Lakers were favored to win the Western Conference and be viable, real viable candidates, teams to win an NBA championship. So I guess the league was begging and pleading with all their heart and mind that the Lakers and the Brooklyn Nets a healthy Brooklyn Nets team could be playing in the NBA Finals, a healthy Los Angeles Lakers team versus a healthy Brooklyn Nets basketball team. That would have sent TV executives and the NBA league offices and everyone involved in the league dancing in the street like Martha and the Vandellas, and you would see them dancing on the ceiling like Lionel Richie. But when Solomon Hill fell on LeBron James' ankle in the second quarter, after going after a loose ball, wasn't dirty. It had nothing to do with short rest. It had nothing to do with those guys being in the bubble. It had nothing to do with um, uh, shortened off season. I mean, it's a play, a high ankle sprain. It wasn't malicious. It wasn't dirty. It's just something that happens in a basketball game. It just so happened to um, happen to LeBron James. So after that, man, Anthony Davis was already out for an extended amount of time with an Achilles injury. Both players were never the same after that, and the Lakers faltered. LeBron missed six weeks, 26 games because of the injury. Davis missed 36 games because of um, heel and calf injuries, and they finished the season 17-14 and 14 and went from, what, what were they, number two, number three behind the Jazz, and I guess at that time either it was the Suns or the L.A. Clippers, who, you know, kind of went up and down. They had their roller coaster ride during the regular season also, but they were in the top three at the very least. And when LeBron went down, they finished the season 17, excuse me, 14 and 17, and went from the number two seed, number three seed, to the play-in game for the playoffs. And there was still belief after that, because it was just an example of, hey, this is how great LeBron is. You know what? We'll go ahead, as long as we get, as long as we get into the playoffs, and we could have a relatively healthy LeBron and Anthony Davis, they'll name me somebody in the Western Conference that's going to be able to beat them four out of the seven times. Name me a guy like LeBron James who seems like it's his annual, is in his contract to make it to the NBA Finals. If he's going to be relatively healthy and Anthony Davis now having the experience of being an NBA champion, if he's going to come back rip-roaring, ready to go, you tell me who in the Western Conference is going to be able to match that experience, is going to be able to match that dynamic duo. I'm not talking about Batman and Robin. It ain't going to be the Utah Jazz who have Donovan Mitchell in who? And you're not going to have the Phoenix Suns do it who have an unproven Devin Booker and Chris Paul who... Um, it's great, but, I mean, are we really going to put that up against LeBron and AD and expect the Phoenix Suns to overcome those 
two giants of professional basketball players. Nikola Jokic, Jamal Murray is out, so you can't rely on Denver. The Clippers, Paul George is a playoff sieve and a playoff choker. And Kawhi Leonard, that's great. But, you know, again, going up against a healthy LeBron and AD. I mean, who in the Western Conference, the argument was at that time going into the playoffs, was going to be able to beat this team with LeBron James and Anthony Davis on the court playing. And even... After the first three games of the first round of the NBA playoffs in the Western Conference, the number seven seed LA Lakers against the number two seed Phoenix Suns. After game three, when LA won going away 109-95 and Chris Paul looked done with a shoulder injury and Jay Crowder was getting clowned by LeBron James and Andre Drummond and those guys on the uh, sidelines were making fools of themselves, mocking laughing at uh, Jay Crowder on the spin move by LeBron right side in the upper on the um, on the uh, reverse layup attempt and everybody said yep there you go the Lakers are uh, back to where they need to be this that and the other how quickly how quickly does the momentum change how men- how quickly does the uh, momentum change the Suns came back to win game 4 Davis injured his groin. So long. Thanks for coming. Thanks for playing. LeBron loses his first um, playoff, first round playoff game ever in his career. Before that, he was 14-0. Where do we go with the Lakers now? you got to find a reliable third option behind LeBron and AD. I thought it was going to be Dennis Schroeder. My bad. Definitely wasn't. He seemed to shrink as the playoffs at the situation got dire. Kyle Kuzma was a no-show. Andre Drummond was a no-show. One of the Morris brothers, I don't know if it was Marcus or Markeith, uh, didn't show up. And the Lakers definitely basically had no one no one else to turn to. Because as your third option, who are you going to have? Alex Caruso? Marcus Gasol? The player formerly known as Marcus Gasol? Taylor Horton Tucker, whatever that guy's name is. That's going to be the guy that's going to bail you guys out if LeBron and AD aren't clicking on all cylinders. They need the Lakers to find themselves a third wheel moving forward. Now, some of the names that are going to be mentioned in trade talks, some of them are ridiculous. Some of them is only because they're the Los Angeles Lakers. And some of you clowns out there who are Laker fans think that the NBA needs to do everything humanly possible to make the Lakers great on a consistent basis. Doesn't happen that way. So I'm quite sure in the offseason, once the season's over, you're going to hear the names Bradley Beal, DeMar DeRozan, Damian Lillard, Ben Simmons, Michael Porter Jr., John Collins, Kyle Lowry, Kemba Walker, C.J. McCollum, Kevin Love, Victor Oladipo. All of those names, some way, somehow, are going to be mentioned in terms of maybe Jalen Brown. Those names are going to be mentioned in terms of, hey, how about this guy going to the Lakers? Of course, what are going to be the trade chips? What are going to... The Lakers don't have a first-round pick. They traded all their first-round picks from the uh, uh, to uh, the Oklahoma uh, to the uh, New Orleans Pelicans, so the Lakers don't have a pick until uh, Duck Dynasty in the twenty-fourth and a half century. So they're going to you you can't uh, you can't throw that out there. What players are, do you have? You're not going to give up Anthony Davis, LeBron. Of course, you're not going to give up. Who else on that squad are you going to give up to even be in the discussion to get somebody who can be? that type of player that could be the third wheel of any type of consequence. I mean, look, you think Portland's going to give up Damian Lillard for Taylor Horton Tucker, Alice Caruso, 
Kyle Kuzma and a 2031 first round draft pick? <laughs> Come on, man. Do you think Kevin Love is going to be the answer? Do you think Victor Oladipo, who's we don't know what type of player he's ever going to be when he comes back because of knee injury? DeMar DeRozan, that's going to be your answer? Young town, uh, a, a homeboy heading back to L.A. and all of a sudden that's going to be the difference? Bradley Beal ain't going to L.A. Damian Lillard, you don't have anything for him. Ben Simmons, a guy who can't shoot free throws, a guy who can't shoot, period. Shrinks because of that in clutch moments for the 76ers. That's your that's your answer? Michael Porter Jr., the man with the bad back, that's your answer? For the Lakers, as far as the third wheel is concerned, John Collins, maybe 36-year-old Kyle Lowry, that's going to be your answer? Again? You're going to have to re-sign Dennis Schroeder. Are you going to what, include him on a sign-and-trade with any of these guys to get somebody? I don't know, man. If, if, they, if the Lakers can't get anybody who's reliable, then they got to go back to just playing great defense and hoping that um, offensively that the team can feed off the greatness of Davis and James. You better hope that the uh, Lakers can do what the Brooklyn Nets did this past regular season, which is basically maintenance anybody of consequence and get them ready to play full bore once the playoffs start. Because if you think about it, what, KD missed 37 games, James Harden missed 36 games, Kyrie Irving missed 18 games. The trio of James Harden, Kyrie Irving, Kevin Durant only played 10 games together, but yet and still, despite the fact that James Harden is hobbling on one leg and Kyrie Kyrie is uh, missing time because of an ankle, ankle injury that the Nets are still where they are, you better hope the best case scenario is that we can just kind of like, you know, keep the boat afloat and we don't make some type of trade that we can re-sign Dennis Schroeder. He comes back. Andre Drummond can do some things while we rest and maintenance LeBron and AD for April when the playoffs start and have them just, you know, turn them loose. I don't know what else you can do. I don't know what else you're going to do. I'm, I'm telling you something right now. I'm going to end this podcast with this. Think about this, Laker fans. And think about this, NBA fans. LeBron James is no longer the player that can carry a franchise for an entire season. LeBron James is no longer the guy where it says, we have LeBron, so as long as LeBron is LeBron, we don't have major troubles. LeBron is no longer LeBron. The best case scenario for James and the Lakers is to get him in a, get him in a position to be at his best for the conference finals, NBA finals, and pray to God, pray to Jehovah, pray to whoever you pray, pray to Allah, or pray to the devil, whoever you pray to, that Anthony Davis can elevate his game even more. Because the LeBron James of, oh, as long as he's here, the Lakers are fine, regardless of anything else outside of Anthony Davis, is no longer applicable to these situations in terms of the Lakers winning championships. The LeBron James, who imposed his will to become the most dominant player for an entire playoff series, that man no longer exists. He can maybe do it for one. And we're speaking about a playoff series going seven games with LeBron James in there. He might be dominant for one and a half. He might be dominant for... Uh, a seven-minute stretch in the fourth. He might be dominant for a quarter. But let me tell you something. The LeBron James of Game 6 of the 2012 Eastern Conference Finals against Boston with Miami down three games to two and he came into Boston Garden and scored 45 points, grabbed 15 rebounds, and had five assists. 
That LeBron James is not coming through the door. The game one of 2018 in the NBA Finals against Golden State where he had 51 points, 8 rebounds, 8 assists, and played 48 minutes, and then yelling at J.R. Smith because he forgot to shoot the ball when he had the chance, that LeBron James is not coming through that door. That version of LeBron James is never coming back in any way, shape, or form. You might see flashes of it. You might see one game of that. You might see one half of that. But the LeBron James who carried the Cleveland Cavaliers to the NBA Finals against the Golden State Warriors of 2018 through that series, that LeBron James is not coming back. Did you see what Kevin Durant did? The type of performance that he had in Game 5 against Milwaukee? LeBron James is not doing that. If LeBron James even came close to doing that, physically he would be done for a week. He would be spent for a week. That LeBron James is not coming back. So the question, can Anthony Davis become that player, the franchise, where it's like LeBron's going to have to say, hey, man, it's your team. I'm coming along for the ride. I'll help you, and I'll be a really good Robin, but you've got to be a Batman because with me being Batman, that ain't cutting it no more. Every franchise superstar player, for the most part, has to do that. Every iconic basketball player eventually had to do that. Will Chamberlain had to do that for the 1966-67 season. Seven times winning the scoring championship, scoring 50 points a game. All of a sudden, it's like, Wilt, we've got other players on this team. We don't need you to go out and score 35 or 40 a game. So Wilt averaged 24 points, 28 rebounds. Or scored, excuse me, 24 points, 24 rebounds, seven assists. Shot about 60% from the field. Uh, curtailed his scoring ability. Philadelphia won 68-13 and, and won the NBA championship. Kareem did it with Magic Johnson in 1987. All of a sudden, Magic averaged 24 points a game. The Lakers won the uh, NBA championship, and Johnson earned his first MVP award. David Robinson did that with Tim Duncan when he found out that his career was near the end and he was leaving it without an NBA championship. He saw this young, strong, unbelievable buck from the Bahamas via Wake Forest coming, and he said, young fella, I'm riding you to not just one championship, two championships, and then I'm going to go John Elway win that championship in my last game and say, see ya. Shaquille O'Neal did that with D-Wade. D-Wade did that with LeBron James. So the responsibility is, hey, man, what is the deal with the Los Angeles Lakers and Anthony Davis? Can he be that guy? Because unfortunately, with LeBron, one of the... Might be the only bad thing in dealing with having LeBron James on your team. It's not his passive-aggressive ways. It's not his, It's not him keeping you in the dark as an organization. It's the fact that because you have LeBron James, and because LeBron James always signs these two-year contracts with, his, with an out clause after one, or four-year contracts with an out clause after two, so he always has the franchise that he's playing for on pins and needles because they know that he can leave any time once the um, first couple of years of his contract is done, because of that, those teams always mortgage their future for the present. So the Lakers have no room for mistakes. The Lakers have no room for flexibility. The Lakers have no room to do anything to really improve or to pass the baton on to the next young fella because guess what? Any first-round draft picks they have, whether you were the Miami Heat, whether you were the Cleveland Cavaliers, and now whether you were the Los Angeles Lakers, you forfeited those because you had to go out and get yourself a Kevin Love. You forfeited those because you had to go ahead and make room for Chris Bosh and for, and for Dwayne Wade, who was already on the Heat. You forfeited that opportunity because you went out and got yourself Anthony Davis when you were with the Los Angeles Lakers, when you were now employed by the Los Angeles Lakers. So the Lakers don't have a 
player in the pipeline like the San Antonio Spurs did when they drafted Kawhi Leonard, like the Utah Jazz do with Donovan uh, Mitchell, like the Miami Heat do with Bam Adebayo. The Lakers don't have the opportunity to draft any of those guys because with LeBron James on your team, ask Cleveland, not once but twice, but also the Miami Heat, those things don't exist because if you start speaking about trying to look toward the future, LeBron is just going to be looking toward his future with another team. So the Lakers need to get younger, quicker, more athletic, but because of LeBron and because of his demands to win now, the Lakers, you know, drop kick their future to win now. So last year in the bubble, it looked great. It looked awesome. Moving forward, what's going to happen now? Moving forward, exactly where are you going to go? How are you going to get better? Now that you have no draft picks, no player as far as of any consequence of talent or someone who can take the baton on, in your organization, where are you going to go? What are you going to do? What trade chips do you have? Kyle Kuzma? What's that going to, uh, what's that going to get you back? What's that going to um, get you in return? It ain't going to get you Damian Lillard. It's not going to get you Bradley Beal. So what are we talking about here? Where are we going now with the Los Angeles Lakers? So those are some of the good points and the bad, bad points with the Lakers moving forward. And uh, I don't know, man. As much as, and as great as LeBron is in the Western Conference, it's still a clusterfuck in terms of there's no one team, just talent-wise, where it's just, you know, a situation. There's no there's no Golden State Warriors of Steph, Clay, and Draymond, and then Steph, Clay, Draymond, and, and uh, KD. So the West is still going to be something to where LeBron and AD, just the two of them, along with the supporting cast, that um, they run it back. Maybe they do have some success, possibly. And you never want to count out LeBron. Totally. But, and, and maybe the rest that LeBron has, you know, since his turnaround was so short, maybe he doesn't play in the Olympics and he takes some time off to recuperate and get ready for the season. Same thing with Anthony Davis. Maybe Anthony Davis does something in terms of changing his workout routine to uh, uh, mitigate some of the bullshit injuries that he had. There's no, like, one deal with Anthony Davis, where it's kind of like, well, you know, he has a bad knee, so he'll always aggravate that bad knee and or a bad hammy or just something like that. Davis always has these, like, bullshit, you got to be kidding me, not devastating but annoying type of injuries, a hamstring, a finger, a wrist, uh, a shoulder, an ankle, a foot. It's like, it's not like, he doesn't have knee problems. He doesn't have foot problems. He doesn't have shoulder problems. It's just, just a myriad of different type of injuries, which are not like, He's going to be out two months or he's going to miss a year or, you know, the Achilles. Or that, you know, he just has these like, you know, just like these nagging damn you injuries where at 28, 29 years old and as great as he is, hey man, this should be a guy who should be like playing 38 minutes a game and, you know, playing 80 games, averaging 36 to 38 minutes a game and being the best power forward, being one of the best big men in the league bar none. I mean, he already is that in a certain extent, but it's just these injuries that just keep holding him back from being that guy to where LeBron is going to say, here, let me get on your shoulders. You take us to a championship. I'm done, you know, being the guy that's going to be the 
uh, reason why or the main reason why we win or don't win a championship. You be that guy. You now be LeBron James as far as the responsibilities for winning of this team is concerned. And I'll take the uh, co-starring role, please. So moving forward, that's what we're going to be talking about. My next podcast, I'll go ahead and talk about. I'm, I'm frothing at the mouth to talk about the Dallas Mavericks and all of that stuff that's going on with Porzingis and Luca and you know Luca's talking about there's rumblings, there's reports that Luca's not sure about his long-term uh, employment with the Dallas Mavericks and there might be some discontent and there might be some grumblings and this, that, and the other. And then Mark Cuban you know, comes out and it's called it bullshit, it's nonsense and this, that, and the other. If Cuban had to be so vociferous in his this is bullshit, this is nonsense, this is fake news, this is horrible, this is trash, this is garbage, concerning Luca's desire to stay with the Mavericks. If he's going to be that uh, demonstrative about that, then um, where there's smoke, there's fire. So all of those stuff, Christoph Porzingis, what are we going to do with him? Who's going to be the coach now of the uh, Mavericks moving forward? And the next time I do a podcast, I mean, we're going to have a conclusion of the second round of the Eastern Conference and the Western Conference, so I'll be speaking about that. So a lot of good things that's coming up here on Wendell's World in Sports, the podcast. And I'm also trying to do some shit to get my uh, YouTube channel back in terms of I'm actually going to try to buy a camera and try to actually learn how to uh, put some shit together. So never too old to learn, even though technology sucks. There you go. Special dedication for everyone Listening to my podcast, special dedication to my lost love and the one that I will always love, no matter what happens to me going forward, the wonderful, the beautiful, the inspirational Felisa Ham hasn't spoke to you in 30 years, but man, I still think about you every day and I still love you much. Peace, love to everybody. Keep learning, keep doing what you need to do to make this world a better place to be, to make your society, to make your soulmate, to make your children, to make your family members all Wonderful, awesome people that they are listening, learning from others who don't look like you, who might have different political affiliations, who might be a different genders. Listen, learn, open mind, be good to each other. I'm gone. Music.